we had a board of directors and they were all the financiers. And in the second year of our existence, I was asked at a board meeting, where is this year's supersize me? <laughs> and like, you can just keep coming up with them every year. Yeah. So like the inexperienced uh, president of company that I was, I said, you know, you ever hear Citizen Kane? He never had another hit. Welcome to First Time Go. I'm Benjamin Duchek. It's Joseph Amaday talking about making a supersize me every year. This week, as we approach 25 episodes, I'm revisiting an earlier conversation we had in our first month with one of the top distributors and just industry good guys. Joe and I talk about his work in the film industry for close to 30 years, shepherding films like Traffic, Supersize Me, and Restrepo to movie theaters. Unless you're a first-time go completist, I love you if you are, it's a great conversation you may have missed if you came to the podcast after July. Our 25th episode will be revisiting some of the success of the creators I talked with in mid-2023. And next Friday, I'll be back to new episodes. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Philadelphia's own Joseph Amade. Joe, how are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, I look forward to hearing your story. So can you talk a little bit about how you got involved in independent filmmaking? Yeah. Well, I started a very, very long time ago when the video business, the opening of video stores all throughout the country was in full speed. I actually uh, got a job at the very first video store in Philadelphia. Oh, cool. I was fixing sewing machines at the time, and I've been a self-proclaimed movie geek since I was a child. That's that's the my most favorite thing to do is sit in a darkened movie theater and you know, watch film. And so if those of your listeners, if they can remember what video stores were, you walked into a store and there was, you know, <laughs> 5,000 movies to choose from. It was kind of like heaven. Right. Yeah. So, you know, what better way to be able to bring her those movies for free than to work there? So right. I, I got a job, you know, peddling tapes and renting tapes to the consumer. And that business did very well for a few years. And then I just, like a lot of folks, I made a progression to a distributor and then to a studio and worked for a company called IVE for a while, uh, ended up working for Ted Turner at Turner Home Entertainment. Uh, and that was fun. In fact, that was really fun. I was there when TCM started. So I was able to witness the birth of my favorite TV channel. And uh, then went to Polygram. From Polygram, I ended up uh, at USA Films, which was owned by Barry Diller. And that's where I learned the independent film business. And all of the companies have one thing in common. They all closed. They all shut down or were bore. In the case of Turner, he sold the company to AOL. In the case of Polygram, they sold the company to Diller. So I was put out to pasture quite a few times. And not because of bad numbers, just because of corporate shenanigans. But at USA, a gentleman by the name of Scott Greenstein took me under his wing and taught me the independent film business. And we released movies like Being John Malkovich, Traffic, Gosford Park. A lot of great great films. Yeah. Great And then Mr. Diller sold that company to Universal. So at this point, I didn't want to go through that anymore. (laughs) And I wrote a business plan and hit the streets in New York to try to find partners to start a new distribution company. And the gods were looking down on me because it took about three days before I found somebody. Wow. And we started a company called Heart. Yes, started a company called Heart Sharp Entertainment. That was a quintessential film distribution company. We were based in uh, New York, down on Bleecker Street. Awesome. What year was this, Joe? This was 80. 83, okay. 1983. And we started acquiring 
films, going out to film festivals and acquiring movies, just like everybody else does. Right. And I was very lucky, again, that I met a guy named Morgan Spurlock, and we released a film called Supersize. And, you know, two things happened. The film put us on the map, and I became very close friends with Spurlock, and I am until today. Right. That's actually more important than the, uh, the success of the film in my eyes, but... Supersize Me, again, if your listeners have never heard of it, look it up. One time, it was the second highest grossing documentary of all time. Wow. Behind, right. Behind Fahrenheit. And it put us, it just put us into the documentary business. Not that I wanted to go that route. I love documentaries. A movie called Harlan County, USA, changed my view on documentaries when I saw it at the age of 16. Right. But they're very, they're very hard to sell. <laughs> so <laughs> right. but people started pitching us really good documentaries. And we signed a deal with National Geographic and they gave us a film called Restrepo. And and we can we can talk a little bit about right. that later. But while all of this is happening, the company itself is starting to have some problems. And without really getting into it, but, you know, we had a board of directors and they were all the financiers. And in the second year of our existence, I was asked at a board meeting, where is this year's supersize me? <laughs> and like, you can just keep coming up with them every year. Yeah. So like the inexperienced uh, president of company that I was, I said, you know, you ever hear Citizen Kane? He never had another hit. <laughs> but that didn't, that didn't work. I'm that sure didn't, that went over well. <laughs> yeah. 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 So we ended up selling the company and it got sold a couple of times to a guy, a guy in, the, in England took it over and saved our, saved our butts. And then in 2008, yeah. the whole thing was sold and we changed the name to Virgil Films. And while all of this is going on, we are releasing a lot of great documentaries and some of right. them are hits and aren't hits and go from VHS to DVD and then to streaming. And with the streaming business, we were a very good customer of Netflix. And I had grown up in the business with Ted Sarandos, who's running okay. Netflix. And one day, one day, Ted called and said, I need 100 movies. I need 100 DVDs. We're going to pay you this amount of money for them. It was a nice check. And I said, what do you need 100 DVDs for? And he said, well, we're going to do this thing called streaming. And I said, what's streaming? And Ted said to me, well, you know, people are, people are going to be able to download movies and watch them on your computer. And so that resulted in the second most <laughs> outrageous thing I ever said to somebody in the business. I said, Ted, I'll give you 100 movies, but nobody's ever going to watch a movie on a computer. <laughs> You're talking to a genius here. Right. Right. <laughs> so, but we were able to make that transition because of relationships. And so we immediately went into the streaming business, again, continuing to purchase and acquire great documentaries. Right. And then, and then again, there's changes. There's always changes in this business. We're actually going through monumental right. changes right now with the strike. It became apparent to me that these original movies and original TV series that the streamers are starting to air, they're making them on their own. Right. And I needed to get into that business. So, so we produced a TV show called Happy Jail that got on uh, to Netflix. We produced a documentary on Clarence Clements for Springsteen saxophone player. So cut to today, we are a company that still goes out and acquires movies, but we produce our own as well. Not a lot, you know, right. one at a time. And we're producing a sports doc right now, but our main business is still acquiring films and getting them put up on Netflix and iTunes and everybody else so the consumer can go rent them. That's fantastic. Yeah, Restrepo was a, such a rewarding experience for all of us because we not only got to release a really good film that was nominated for the Oscars, but right. we became very close friends with Sebastian Younger and Tim Hetherington. 
which turned tragic when Tim right. died in Libya. But we saw the reaction from the veterans, from the soldiers on this film. Right. And it put us on a, we, we embarked on a journey to find films that paid tribute to the women and men in Iraq or Afghanistan and coming home and dealing with the problems that they continue to deal with. We ended up releasing about 11 or 12 films over the next five or six years that deal with those types of stories. Very, very hard to sell, but we didn't care. You Interesting. Know? We just didn't care. We felt that we needed to get these films out there. But, you know, as time progressed and we get to the past seven or eight years of what has happened in the United States, the documentaries, in particular documentaries about soldiers, right. the consumer is shying away from. Right. Because there's so much bad news on TV. Right. <laughs> you know, we're so crippled by the media right now and everything that's happened in the past six or seven years that, you know, they want it taken away. They want to, they want to be taken away like movies used to take them away and right. make them feel good. So so we find it a lot harder right now. Not that we shy away from them. You release a movie and you get a letter from a veteran that says that, you know, he was ready to jump off a bridge and your movie they, made him go right. seek hell. How do you right. walk away from films like that? That's so. a great feeling. That's a great feeling. So when yeah. you first saw Rest Repo, was it in post-production before it launched? Like, did you know that it was going to be as well received as it was? And what was the Defense Department's view of it? Like government, did they say you're showing like too much? No, we, I think I saw Restrepo, an early cut of Restrepo, but the journey that we took with Restrepo, and this does not happen a lot, is really from rough cut to final cut to going to the premieres, screening the movie at, at a bunch of different places, Some in some cases with uh, Sebastian and, and Tim going through the awards season. My wife and I attended the National Board of Review Awards, which was amazing. And my wife sat next to Tim Hetherington, who oh, cool. could be one of the nice, the nicest guys and best looking guy. I mean, he, was, <laughs> he was gorgeous. And uh, my wife immediately fell in love with him. I was so fortunate to have him even in my life for that very, very short amount of time. Right. And the same with Sebastian. So I never heard of government interference. We screened this for USO, folks. We screened this all over the place. Because the thing about Restrepo kind of guided us through all of our other releases. We would not take on a film that was anti-soldier right. or anti-America. There's just no reason for it. Right. The films that we released had to have a balance. Yes, did it deal with soldiers coming back and maybe not getting the help that they should have gotten? Yeah, we'll, we'll tell that story. Right. But never any, you know, this is your fault or this is your fault or there were no weapons or there are, I, I didn't, we didn't get into that. Awesome. We, we focused on releases that could possibly tell stories of soldiers that could use some help. That's fantastic. So before I ask you about the independent film market generally, I wanted to ask about the documentary market specifically. So how do you see that right now? Like, I feel like it's all like the majority of documentaries now are either celebrity based, true crime. Is it hard to sell, doc, maybe harder to sell documentaries than it ever was before? Yeah, it, it, it is. You know, you would think it would be the opposite because right. people that are not in the industry assume that because there's more channels, that means there's more opportunities, but that's exactly. just not the case. Yeah. Documentaries, you know, as I said in the beginning, documentaries have always been very, very hard to sell. And are they harder now? They're harder now, but I think they're harder to sell now. And when I say sell, I mean get a streamer 
right. or an, an HBO or Max to acquire it and put it up on their system. That's what's hard these days. And it's hard not just because it's a documentary, because the business itself is in such a shambles right now and has been for a year that anything is hard to sell right now. So if you're trying to sell a horror film, you know, that's hard. If you're trying to sell an action movie, that's hard. Unless, of course, it's cast-driven, and we all know that right. Brad Pitt's going to be in the game. An independent film is very, very hard these days. When you have Netflix's stock dropping last year, you have Discovery Plus buying Warner Brothers, getting rid of HBO and turning it into Max. You have Hulu now looks like they're going to fold into Disney. Showtime is now officially Paramount Plus. This is a disruption that uh, CNN Films being shuttered, that was a that was a haven for documents. Right. They are one day, gone the next. It's So it's increasingly difficult to get those type of folks to acquire your film. But at the same time, the what we call the transactional business, meaning people going onto iTunes or Amazon and renting a movie. Right. Or now going to Tubi or Pluto and watching a movie that has commercials, that business is increasing. Okay. Interesting. So that's the hope right. that, that continues. Is it increasing to is it increasing financially to the point that where we were four years ago, five years ago? No. No. But it just means filmmakers have to be very careful when they make their movie, in particular documentary filmmakers. Right. Days of spending a couple million dollars, it's going to be tough to recoup that money. Right. So, but is it one? No. Good doc still works. We see it happen all the time. And so, how do you see films getting funded right now? Is it when you see films come to you, or is it mostly independent, like crowdfunding? Is it self-funding or a combination? Uh, crowdfunding seems to have gone away. It's 90% I've gone out and raised the money. I if I have an uncle or an aunt or a father or mother or credit cards or it's the old fashioned way. There is yeah, it's a very strange phenomenon that there are people out there that have a lot of money that even though they they've made their money or continue to make their money in a business that has nothing, the furthest thing in the world from the film business, right? They're intrigued by the movie business. At the end right. of the day, it's still the movie business. And, yeah, you know, see your name in lights. If, you if know. your movie, if your yeah, if your movie works, you're going to have a, a premiere somewhere. And it's going to have a red carpet. They're going to get to walk it. They're going to get introduced. And, and they dig it. They really, really like it. And if you can find those people, <laughs> you have a decent idea, you can get them to finance your film. And they're great people, by the way. Right. There's a couple that I've been in business with for a few years now, and they're wonderful people. And they love movies. So most of the financing is coming from self self financing. Interesting. So when do you when does Virgil get involved? So if I had an idea, would I come to you? Would I be in production development post production? At what point do I contact you regarding my movie? All of the above. We have people coming to us with finished films. We have people coming to us when their films are in post. The TV show that I uh, made reference to called Happy Jail, which is on Netflix, filmmakers came to me. We had released a film that they had made a few years prior to this, and they told me they had all this footage that they had already shot, over 100 hours of footage that they had shot at this jail in the Philippines, and they wanted to turn it into a TV show. And they envisioned a eight-part, one-hour uh, per episode series. So they had nothing else done, just principal photography. <laughs> So we put it into a pitch and it's a classic pitch. It's you, know, you walk into these accounts and you stand there and you show a sizzle and right. you try to get them to come up with the money to finish the project. And they did. Netflix did. They came up with the money. Everybody made money. Um, 
within, you know, in what they paid us, we each individually got paid. Awesome. And the filmmaker said, well, you know, we're going to edit the film ourselves. And Netflix said, no, <laughs> we're going to send you over to one of our editors. And I, I can remember correctly, the guy that helped edit the film edited Fight Club. So, wow. and, you know, they're putting up the money and it wasn't a little bit of money. It was a lot of money. Right. So, you know, they're looking at everything and they're making final decisions. And the series got done. It ended up being five episodes, 40 minutes each. How often do you see the financial terms dictate the creation of a film in a way that the filmmakers don't accept? Does that happen often or is that not a common problem? I know most filmmakers, if they're looking for a million dollars and somebody offers them half a million, a smart filmmaker will find a way to make that same movie for half a million. Interesting. Because you, you might you might not ever get the million. Right. You know, so Or another offer. Any film is going to require a lot of travel, especially right. international travel. If your film's going to be filled with clips that are going to, especially music clips, or right. you know, going to be needed. It's just, there's no way you can make the, you're going to make a documentary about the Beatles. You're going to have to have the money to make a documentary. Right. With no music. <laughs> with no music. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we made a movie about Clarence Clemens that has multiple Bruce Springsteen songs in it, and we had to creatively work those songs into the movie. Is there any so, genre, are, are, are there genres that you want to look for films coming your way and then genres that you stick, stay away from? I always say that there's genres that I really don't want to get involved in any longer because they just don't sell. And these are mainly genres about people with some form of a, a disease. You okay. know, somebody right. with ALS and somebody puts a camera on, starts following that person for five right. years. Most of these films do not end well. Right. Stumer is like, ah, I, you know, no, I just don't want to watch it, you know? Right. Um, so, but then somebody will present us with a story about someone with ALS. It's so right. illuminating and so rewarding. A good documentary is you fall in love with the characters. You know, you start to relate to the characters and you want to you want to help these people. And not just ALS, but you right. know, we, had a, we had a guy come to us who got, was diagnosed with cancer when he was a teenager and he decides to, you know, he's in a wheelchair, decides to like wheelchair across the country. Right. It's one of the most inspiring stories I've ever heard and I can't get anybody to watch the movie. Interesting. You know, so it's very, very hard. Right. But, but we still give him a shot. The only right. genre that is becoming oversaturated is true crime because the one thing that filmmakers need to remember you know right now today they say you know well true crime is the number one genre well that's great okay so you go i'm gonna go make a, a true crime eight-part series about if there is a serial killer left that, we, that hasn't had his own series i'm gonna go do that what's gonna take you it's going to take you a year and a half to make right. that series. Well, you better hope that a year and a half from now, true crime isn't. Right. So you you, you got to be careful. I'm, you know, me personally, I'm tired of them, but there's a, a lot of people out there that like that stuff. I don't know why, but there's a lot of people out there that like that stuff. A ton. So bottom line is you got to love your subject. You got to, you can't, again, if you're making the movie, but the Beatles is one thing. There's that level of documentaries that, that I get, but other other than that, I try to tell filmmakers to plan to make your documentary not to lose money. Right. But know in your mind that you're probably not going to make a lot. Right. You know, but 
you, you don't you, you don't want to take because you you have investors you don't want to take the investors money and have to go right. back to them and say you know you've just right. lost your money you want to do everything you can to make sure that investor gets back his money or her money and then if there's profits after that it's fantastic and you also need to know the filmmakers need to know that the age of you make all your money the first month is out the window right it, it takes a year year and a half two years to finally start to see real money coming in just it just takes that long do you feel for the vast majority of your career that you've made money for your investors sounds like relationships are very important but it also sounds like you have kept the investors that you brought in whole in a way that let's say you know you had lost investors money continuously back in the 90s or 2000s maybe you wouldn't be doing this now well that's that's a hard question to answer because i don't have i haven't done a lot with investors the company that i own i own i don't have an investor the the Hart Sharp folks were, were bought out. So okay. they didn't lose any money. The gentleman that, that took over and owned us from the UK, he did lose some money. And the Clarence Clemens movie lost some money, at least as of now. Again, right. talking a year from now, maybe we'll, maybe we'll break even. <laughs> Happy Jail did not lose money. You know, right. they, all the investors were paid back handsomely. Right. Uh, and in that part of the business, the distribution part of the business is you go make a movie, you finish your film, you come to us, and we are the vehicle to get it out in front of everybody to, to watch, to, right. to rent. I'd say probably half of those releases probably lost money for those investors because the filmmaker spent too much money. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, seems like it's quite a common notice problem. How I just blame I blame the filmmaker. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's just tough. It's you know you're right. It's just hard. It's a, you know it's a hard business. It's always been a hard business. It's been a hard business since the days of Charlie Chaplin. Right. The the, the, the cliche is it's a film business. It's right. It's just true. Nobody wants to talk about it, but it's true. And and it's very hard to make money in a film business. Right. Yeah. And documentary films. That's why, school, you know, by the way, that, that's why there's two strikes going on. Here. Right. No, exactly. Yeah. Our instructor told us, prepare to max out your credit cards. And I was thinking, oh, what am I getting myself into? Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, wait, well, why do why you say that? Before you say, if you're going to go down this route, educate yourself. Right. Not just on the subject matter of the movie you're making and, and, and educate yourself in the business. Meaning so many films come to us and we say to the filmmaker, okay, we're going to put your film up on Amazon Prime. Uh, we're going to put it up on iTunes. We're going to put it up on Tubi, put it up on Vudu. The filmmaker has not, they've heard of iTunes and they've heard of Amazon. They have right. no idea what the account is. Educate yourself on the business part of it. Educate yourself right. on... How's my movie going to make money? Educate yourself on what things that are going to have to be paid for, like insurance, right. like PR, right. things like that. Make sure all of that is covered before you turn your camera on. Because right. turning your camera on is the easy part. I, right. it, 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 it sounds crazy, but it really is. Knowing that, know, know what you have to deliver digitally to get your film out, because there's a cost to you. Is going to come right. from you. Pay for that. Educate yourself because so many filmmakers don't, and they don't teach it in film school. No, and how to spend money. So, how do you think the writers' strike and actors' strike will affect your business and pipeline? It's not affecting it right now because if I got lucky enough to sell a movie to Netflix today, it wouldn't be up on their system till February, March. Oh wow, that's okay. how far that's how far in advance. Wow, so, and that's when I say Netflix, I mean everybody. Right. 
Hulu, Disney, they're just scheduled that far in advance. So, but if it goes longer than September, October, they're going to need product. It, it, this is going to sound horrible. The strike is the best thing in the world for independent distribu distributors, not filmmakers, distributors, because we have movies to sell them. <laughs> right. And we're allowed to do that, you know, knowing a whole lot of actors and knowing a whole lot of writers, I understand where they're coming from. We live in a world today where CEOs of companies make a lot of money. Right. Not just film and television, it's insurance. It's we've all yep. been aghast at this company goes down and you know the golden parachutes. Yep. Yep. You know, so the movie business though when it happens in a movie business you know you're talking about beloved actors going out on strike right so that's why it's getting press if this was the shoe business or it wouldn't be making cnn right know? right yeah right right exactly shoe salesmen are uh, going on strike outside their you know mall or whatever yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know so so everybody has to remember that but it's going to be interesting you know the actors from everybody that i've talked to they are nowhere near agreeing on anything right i don't know it's going to be interesting to see how it turns out but yeah as far as independent distribution is concerned it, it's you know the longer the longer the, the longer it lasts the better it is for us financially right I don't want to, you know, make my entire business predicated on a strike. Right. And you don't think that translates to independent filmmakers just because maybe they won't be able to have access to the acting or writers? Do you think there is a lane there for independent indie filmmakers to hop into maybe with documentaries or some other product? There is. And but, you know, that's what everyone's going to do. So, right. The longer the strike list. Now, there are a lot of actors out there that are not a member of SAG. Right. That's what's going to be interesting. How many non-union films are going to, I mean, there's, there's a ton of them being made anyway, but they find but they find it hard to be, you know, to find distribution. How many of them could now find distribution? iTunes doesn't care if it's a union film or a, right. they, don't even, they don't even know. So <laughs> it, it's the the octopus reaches of all the different tentacles that this these two strikes um have put out there is going to be very very interesting and i will be in los angeles next week i actually have meetings at netflix it'll be oh, interesting cool. to see i i've heard there's 1500 people down to, on the outside of the wow. building it'll be interesting but listen i wish both i wish both sides well i i know people very well on both sides of the issues right. there's a lot of people that aren't making enough money in in our industry that need help so we'll see how it goes so can you talk a little bit about philadelphia i think you've been there since 2008 or so it's actually been philadelphia awesome most of my career was spent in new york city so right. i would just commute from New, from Trenton, New Jersey. I, I live in uh, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Okay, awesome. Wanted to raise my family here. Um, had opportunities to move to LA. Had opportunities to move to Atlanta when I worked for Turner, but never did it. And right. I'm glad now that I never did. We had an office in New York City for 15 years, and it, when the independent film, this is another way that streaming has changed everything. You know, the center of the independent film business was New York City, and then when streaming took over, there. All in California, Hulu, Disney, Netflix, Apple, they're all in LA. So we were going, all of us were, you know, spending a week or two every four or five weeks in LA. And slowly the independent film business started to go away. And um, as crazy as this might sound, when Harvey Weinstein ran into his problems, the Weinsteins were a big part of the independent film business in New York City. And all of a sudden that obviously went away. 
So we found, you know, having an office down by Bleecker Street, and nobody's coming to see us because they're all going to L.A. So I talked to my staff. I said, listen, I'm thinking of closing the office and working out of our homes. And it took about five seconds for them to say yes, because we all had pretty lengthy commutes. So you were like way ahead of the curve on working from home. We go to the landlord. I mean, I'm in New York City. I, I got a lease. I go to the landlord. I'm like, hey, man, I, I got to get out. I want to move. Can you help me? And he says, you know, it's really weird. Uh, two hours ago, I met with some people and they want your office. Can you be out in three weeks? We were out in three weeks, um, but all of a lot of stuff in storage, but we're out in three weeks. Not only did he get me out, let me out of my lease, but he gave me back my security deposit. That was November 2019. COVID hits four months later. We wow. were already working from home. So we were very, very lucky. So we work out of our house. We travel to the accounts. We go to the film festivals and it seems to work. Is there a film, independent film community in Philadelphia specifically that you're able to there connect is. with? There or? is. There always has been, again, growing up a film lover. You know, I, I met fellow film geeks. I guess in Philadelphia and um, some of them are still around it used to be a much more vibrant film community than it is today but there's still a lot of filmmakers who come out of Philadelphia it's not like New York City or LA or even Chicago one thing about Philadelphia it's a sports town Right. You know, it's an Eagles and Phillies and Flyers and Sixers town a lot much more than it is a film town. Interesting. Um, yeah, it, it it really, really is. There is a great Philadelphia Film Festival every October that, you know, brings a lot of independent films and foreign films and some bigger films to Philadelphia. I remember even back during the days when things were pretty vibrant, there was a list made. I think Philadelphia was like number nine in the country when it came to film. But, you know, there's a Philadelphia Film Commission, there's a Pennsylvania Film Commission. A lot of bigger films are being made in Philadelphia. The problem that I've heard, I've never been a part of this, but you know, there's grants that are given by the Pennsylvania Film Commission and they end up going to Netflix or right. to somebody that wants to film Mayor of Easttown here. And the lowly independent filmmaker that, you know, is trying to make a movie for a couple hundred thousand dollars in Philadelphia, right. not the film commission's fault, but there's some communities. So yeah. It's, it's a good place to film. So, Joe, if I was just starting 18 or even 21, would you recommend going to film school? And what kind of advice could you give uh, just a new filmmaker on how to start their career? Film, film school is great. Do you have to go to film school? No. You Because it's a world of digital these days, you could get your own camera, a good camera, and go make your movie. If you've watched a lot of movies. The, the, the advice that I would give is first watch a lot of movies and don't, and I'm not, I have nothing against Marvel films, but you know, branch out a little bit right? and watch a whole lot of black and white stuff. Watch silent movies. Watch, I always say to people, watch the masters, watch Hitchcock and watch Ford and watch Wells and learn from what you're seeing on the screen. That's still the best stuff. But yeah, there's nothing wrong with film school. I know a lot of filmmakers that went to film school and have made been have had successful careers. And I, I know an equally amount of people that never walked into a classroom and did it on their own. I never went to film school. I went to acting school, but never went to film school. You, know, you almost you... did, right? In terms of like the research that you did, you talked about how you watched like so many films. Like it, it was yeah. sort of your own personal curated film yeah. school in a way. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I still, to this day, will watch at least, I see four to 500 films a year. I don't know what I would do if I couldn't do that. I just love it so much. Today, I will look at, I've already got planned on what I'll see for the next week. Even when I'm in LA, I know what I'm going to see. So 
you can teach yourself that way. But again, film school, the use of a camera, the use of editing, very important as well. So, I, you know, again, I would never say to somebody, don't go to film, don't go to school. But at the same time, if somebody came to me and said, I'm going to go make a movie, right. I was then to go make a movie. Well, that's fantastic advice, Joe. Anything else that you'd like to leave our listeners with? You just have to really love it. This business is, uh, for me personally, it's been wonderful to me and wonderful more on a personal basis than a financial basis. And I've had the time of my life, even during really desperate times when the money wasn't there and you have six months or eight months to films that don't make a lot of money and you <laughs> wonder, gonna, you know, sustain this. Um, but you just have to, you have to love it more than anything else in the world with the exception of your family. It has to be number two because there will be a ton of heartbreak. The ups will erase that heartbreak a lot, but you're going to get hit again because it's it's all about is the movie any good or is the does the movie make money? And you're you're in a business that seventy percent of, of films that are made don't make money. Right. The odds that you're up against. So you really got to love it. And I you know we use interns every once in a while, and I and I have these conversations with them, and and I say how much do you love it? And you have to really really love it. And most people do that are in the business. Awesome. Joe, thanks for joining me on the weekend conversation. You're welcome. It's been my pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the First Time Go podcast. The goal is to make life a little easier for independent creators. So if you're with me for that, give the pod a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Early access to episodes and other subscription benefits are available on Red Circle, Patreon, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to be highlighted on the show, please send an email to firstgopod at gmail.com. And let's help creators get their first time go.